Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to the June 2022 Major Mondays webinar. Today, we're going over third-party consent best practices. And as always, uh, this is a live question and answer session. So uh, if you have any questions, feel free to post them in the, in the box, and I'll check them out at the end. So let's start with where this actually comes from. So Section 29.5 requires the carrier's written approval to settle. Uh, the burden is on the claimant to get the carrier's consent. They have, to, if it's an issue that's disputed, they have to produce proof that they uh, got the carrier's consent. Failure to obtain our consent before settling their third-party case results in a waiver of future workers' comp benefits. And the claimant does have some remedies under Section 29.5 if the carrier will not or did not give consent. Uh, we'll get to that in a few moments. So just how rigid is this requirement? Um, so the claimant basically needs our consent no matter what. And if you're asking yourself why, let's refer to this uh, lovely case I cited to. Because consent is required whenever the settlement is less than benefits provided by wor the workers' comp law, and any settlement is potentially less than the benefits provided by the workers' comp law. Now, the situations in which this might not apply is, you know, if a case is already closed, full and final, but uh, workers' compensation is theoretically unlimited. It could go into perpetuity, you know, except for the claimant passing. So uh, basically any potential third-party settlement is potentially less than what the workers' comp law covers. So let's go over a few of these to make the point uh, a little more poignant. Denied case, we denied uh, the workers' compensation claim and a third-party action settles. Consent required? Yes. Settlement for 100% of the policy limits, meaning third-party counsel could not possibly do any better. Settlement still, or consent still required? Yes. We haven't paid anything yet. There is no workers' comp lien. Settlement still, or consent still required? You guessed it, yes. <laughs> the no-fault carve-out, that whole 50K carve-out we've talked about on many prior webinars, um, means that there's no Section 29 reimbursement coming to the carrier. Maybe we haven't paid over 50K. Uh, are consent still required? Yes. So uh, this this requirement is pretty rigid. And if you're interested in seeing any of the cases that stand for those propositions, feel free to shoot me an email. Uh, we have the New York Risk Transfer Handbook. I'd be happy to send you an electronic copy or a paper copy at your request. But there is a whole chapter on third-party consents and uh, NPT motions, and uh, all the pertinent cases are cited to in there. So. Let's talk about just how powerful this consent agreement is. So this is one of the most useful tools potentially available to you in a workers' compensation claim. Why? We get to call the shots in this one. We can memorialize how our reimbursement is calculated and we can specify how it is to be paid. Uh, we can agree to, future, to how future offset rights are going to be applied. And there's this lovely case, Matter of Stenson from the third department. And this goes for both indemnity and medical. So. I'm gonna get into exactly why this is a wonderful thing for us. Um, so first, a caveat, any ambiguities are going to be construed in favor of the claimant. A failure to explicitly reserve your uh, future offset rights equals a waiver of those rights. Um, if you're not careful about how your Burns rights are going to apply, sometimes you pay more than your fair share under Burns because the consent does not specify one way or the other. Again, I'm gonna go into that in a second. Um, you have to make sure to navigate your rights uh, in an MVA case. You have to specify what is or is not paid in lieu of first-party benefits. 
And you do have to be clear about any waiver of rights. For instance, if you're having the claimant waive burns, uh, you have to state that explicitly. So just a word on Williams versus Lloyd Gunther elevator service. You can file this under the category of, of one of my absolute favorite cases. Uh, this is a third department decision from 2014. Uh, your credit and offset rights begin when specified in the agreement. You can apply your rights as of the date of issuance of the consent. Uh, what does this do for you? It avoids changing the reimbursement amount uh, while the third party settlement is finalized and it avoids changing any sort of burns obligation. So what Williams versus Lloyd Gunther Elevator Service allows you to do is potentially suspend workers' comp benefits or reduce them to the burns rate uh, as of the date of issuance of your consent agreement. And if you think about it practically, that stops you from continuing to pay workers' comp benefits and having the lien reimbursement amount go up, which then reduces the third-party settlement amount, which then requires a new consent agreement. So it's a wonderful way to keep the numbers straight and sort of halt your lien for the time being. Um, the most useful context for this, undoubtedly the global settlement, there's gonna be a delay in between issuing the consent agreement and uh, the notice of approval being filed by the board for a section 32. Um, what's so great about this is you can actually halt benefits without a section 32 because the board's jurisdiction is limited to just interpreting the contents of the consent agreement. And that goes even if you have a directive to continue payments. Now, all of the usual rules still apply, right? You're going to have to make sure you file the shroy with the board indicating suspension. And I would definitely spell it out in the consent agreement that that's exactly what's happening here. But it is the one situation outside of a section 32 where you can essentially suspend benefits without board approval. So let's talk about addressing Kelly, Burns, and Bissell. Uh, so reminder, Kelly provides the calculation for our reimbursement amount and our future offset percentage. Remember, we're working with that cost litigation calculation, so attorney's fee plus costs and disbursements divided by gross settlement. Burns addresses our future offset rights, and absent an agreement to the contrary, future medical and indemnity are payable at what you might have heard as the Burns rate. Uh, what does that mean? It means you're going to pay future medical and indemnity at approximately one-third uh, of what the value should be. And that's usually referred to as the burns rate colloquially. Uh, the actual percentage may differ from being exactly one-third. Uh, it depends on the Kelly calculation or what you agree to. Uh, Bissell was a hybrid of Kelly and Burns. Um, you know, they uh, resolved the indemnity component, but then also determined that future medical was too speculative. Um, and just keep in mind the consent is a contractual agreement, so lay everything out explicitly. So how is your cost of litigation calculated? Based upon what? So this is why we ask for a proposed closing statement in advance. We want to lay out his attorney's fee is X and his costs and disbursements are Y. Uh, the gross settlement is this. And then, you know, cost of litigation divided by gross settlement equals COL percentage. And then we've applied that to the lien and we state what the current lien is. Uh, how do future offset rights apply? When do they start? What are the claimant's obligations? What do I mean by claimant's obligations? Well, if they continue to undergo medical treatment, how are we tracking how these offset rights are being applied? You know, how do we know the claimant is paying out of pocket for the medical bills unless the claimant is submitting the bills and the treatment records and proof of payment to us periodically for reimbursement? So you can spell out what the claimant's obligations are in the consent agreement. How is our future offset calculated? What is the net to the claimant from the third party settlement? Uh, how do we protect ourselves if any of the settlement figures change? 
Uh, how is ongoing medical treatment addressed? And again, what about, the direct, what about any directive to continue payments? So these are all things that you can spell out contractually in the agreement that the claimant and his third party attorney uh, can agree to. The one thing I will float out there is that if you're doing anything that implicates future rights in the workers' comp case, such as you know suspending an ongoing CCP, bear in mind that there's probably uh, an attorney's fee on that, and there's also uh, you know a potentially angry claimant's attorney to deal with. So anything that implicates the claimant's rights in the workers' compensation claim, I would strongly recommend. Uh, a lot of times they won't agree to sign the agreement but you should at the bare minimum make sure that claimant's counsel confirms in writing that they understand the terms of the consent. A lot of times they'll say, I'm not a party to this case, I'm not signing it. That's fine, as long as you have that statement in writing. All right, to Burns or not to Burns? I've been teasing that we were gonna to get to this eventually. So Burns requires that we pay our share of litigation costs moving forward, and it applies absent an agreement to the contrary. There are few ways to get around Burns in a consent agreement. Number one, specify exactly when burns will end uh, once our obligation is satisfied. What do I mean by that? So you are never um, liable for more than the claimant's actual cost of litigation. If you think about it practically, right, let's say the claimant settles for $90,000, there are no costs and disbursements, the attorney's fee is exactly one third. That means the claimant's cost of litigation is $30,000. Let's say the reduction to your lien to contribute to $30,000 uh, is is 20,000, right? 20,000 comes off your lien to determine the reimbursement amount. And then let's say you pay, you know, 10,000 in ongoing medical treatment or indemnity benefits. The moment you hit 10,000, you have now paid uh, you have now paid your obligation toward burns or the moment you hit 10,000 in the payments that you are making, not the payments you're offsetting. You have now met your obligation per Burns. Your Burns obligation never exceeds the claimant's actual litigation costs. So in your consent agreement, it's a good idea to say that outright and say, you know, that the parties understand that uh, the carrier's liability for its equitable share of litigation expenses shall not exceed the claimant's actual cost of litigation. Uh, and then you can point out exactly how much your lien was reduced by and, you know, what the contribution is to the claimant's ongoing litigation uh, costs. Uh, it's definitely a good idea to spell that out because a lot of times carriers will just keep paying at the burns rate indefinitely and you don't always have to do that. Um, you can have the claimant agree to waive all future burns rights. So this is somewhat uncommon. You'd have to catch a third party attorney uh, asleep at the wheel essentially, except for one situation I'm going to get into in a moment. Um, the thing to keep in mind again is that this is a contractual agreement. So if there's no consideration for the claimant agreeing to waive their burns rights, you're gonna have some difficulty potentially enforcing it. But again, the board is just limited to interpreting the terms of the consent agreement. So um, a lot of times this is still gonna be enforceable and not objectionable. In other words, leave it to them to make the argument, well, my client didn't get anything in exchange for waiving these rights. Um, a present lien waiver to satisfy your burns obligation. This is what happened in the matter of Stenson case we referenced earlier. So say you know that you would have to pay another 10,000, like in our prior example, toward litigation costs. You can lop another 10,000 off your lien reimbursement to do that upfront uh, and then take a dollar for dollar offset going forward. In other words, not worry about the burns rate. Uh, again, this has to be spelled out explicitly. Like when I mentioned earlier, any waiver of rights has to be spelled out explicitly. 
this is what you're doing, you got to state it and just walk it through in you know, plain English. Parties understand that the carrier is waiving X amount of its reimbursement to satisfy its burns obligation. All future credit and offset rights shall be applied on a dollar for dollar basis. You get the idea. Um, so no matter how burns rights are negotiated, again, spell it out explicitly, uh, a claimant agreeing to a dollar for dollar offset and then both parties saying we reserve burns rights, technically those two statements are actually inconsistent. Uh, if you're reserving burns rights and the claimant is agreeing to a dollar for dollar offset, you're saying, I reserve the right to pay it one third going forward, and so does the claimant, but I'm not going to pay it one third going forward. Uh, that is going to be construed against you as the carrier, and surprise, surprise, that's going to be found to be an ambiguous term, and the board is going to find that you're liable for payment at the burns rate. So, again, be explicit and be careful. Uh, a little expert tip here if the settlement is small, the third party settlement, and you are asked to compromise the lien in any way, like if they say, will you agree to a third, a third, a third? As always, I caution against that because nothing in the law says you have to accept that. But if you do decide to do you know, a partial lien waiver, um, you can try to negotiate the Burns waiver in exchange. So it's, yeah, I'll do a third, a third, a third, provided that my future offset rights are going to be on a dollar for dollar basis. Uh, and then you know, there is some consideration for the claimant's waiver of Burns, which is your agreement to reduce the lien. And it's a little more favorable to you too you're not just waving bye-bye to that money you agreed to waive, uh, you're reserving dollar-for-dollar dollar offset rights on the claimant's portion of the settlement, which is now increased because you have agreed to waive a portion of your lien. So it's a creative way to sort of get money on the back end if they'll agree to it. All right, other consent issues. I know I've been rambling for quite some time already. Uh, so consent can be implied um, if the worker's compensation carrier is the same as the third-party liability carrier. It depends on facts and board findings. Why do I bring this up? Uh, if you happen to be the same carrier on the uh, comp side and on the GL side, I would specify in any settlement negotiation correspondence that this correspondence is not a consent to settlement of any third party claim. Uh, courts have previously held that oral consent can be found based on the facts, uh, but recent decisions make it clear that formal written consent is almost always required. Uh, the requirement for written consent includes voluntary abandonment of the case uh, or discontinuance of a third-party action. Why do I bring this up? A lot of times they'll discontinue as soon as they have a settlement agreement and before they even ask for your consent. And especially if that stipulation of discontinuance is filed with the Supreme Court before your consent was ever obtained and if it's with prejudice, your rights have literally just been prejudiced. What if you wanted to pick up prosecution of the action because you don't agree with the settlement amount? You have a right to do so under Section 29.2. These guys have just disposed of the claim against the third-party defendants without asking you if it was okay. So sometimes you'll see these stiffs of discontinuance be filed six months before anyone even asks you for your consent. And that is problematic, and I would definitely be leveraging that argument that the claimant has settled without your consent in violation of 29.5. And look, even if you don't prevail on it, what does it do? Provides leverage in the workers' comp claim for litigation purposes. Maybe you drive them to settlement. All right, so what happens if we don't consent? So why wouldn't we? Well, sometimes the timing is wrong. We might have a section 32 pending uh, or withholding consent as leverage for something. Uh, third party counsel could be hiding something like they're not giving us a closing statement and they have $50,000 in costs and disbursements on a $100,000 settlement. Uh, or the workers' compensation claim hasn't been filed yet. So Section 29.5 lays out two possible remedies for the claimant. Uh, a compromise order over the carrier's objection, 
or a posthumous approval of consent via what's called the nunk-pro-tunk motion, we'll call it NPT for short. Just note that section 29.5 is either or. There is no requirement for them to go to us and say, can I have your consent first? Uh, if they want to proceed with the section 29.5 compromise order right out of the gate before they even loop us in, that is permissible. But as I'm just about to discuss here, if you go to the NPT motion, uh, like if you delay in making this motion for a compromise order, there are heightened showings for it. So here's the beautiful thing about the section 29.5 compromise order. What is required is literally spelled out word for word in the statute. Name and residence of the claimant, date of accident and description, uh, itemization of damages, the terms of the attorney retainer, whether any previous application has been made, um, they need to include uh, the petition, an attorney affidavit, a physician's affidavit. Spoiler alert, most of them do not include a physician's affidavit. Uh, contents of the uh, attorney and physician affidavits are also specifically laid out in the statute. Uh, they have to give a notice of motion under the CPLR, so they have to give us a chance to submit affidavits and be heard in court. Uh, and the court will sometimes let counsel get away with satisfactory compliance on the 29.5 motion. But if you are opposing the motion for the compromise order, um, it's pretty easy to oppose generally because many times their motion will not comply with these requirements. All right, so the nunk-pro-tunk motion. This is the last topic for uh, this webinar. So nunk-pro-tunk means now for then. Uh, it means the settlement happened and counsel wants to avoid waiver of the claimant's workers' comp benefits or the workers' comp claim is you know, ultimately filed later. So approval has to be sought within three months of the settlement, uh, but this doesn't apply uh, when the settlement is not during trial. Uh, the NPT motion is still subject to the requirements of section 29.5, uh, but there's some additional criteria it has to satisfy. Uh, if court approval isn't sought within three months of the date of settlement, the claimant has to show reasonableness of the settlement, lack of any fault or neglect, and lack of any prejudice to the carrier. The good news? With both the 29.5 compromise order and the NPT motion, we retain our rights. The court is without authority to fix it any other way. Uh, and again, if you want the uh, citation for that, all of this is detailed in the risk transfer handbook, which I'm happy to send at your request. All right, the, the meat of the webinar, let's get to some takeaways, some best practices here. Ask for a proposed closing statement, ask for it in advance, and ask for the final version after everything is all wrapped up. They have to file a final version with the Office of Court Administration. You want a copy of that. More on that in a second. Uh, state the most current lien total. As of X date, we have paid you know this amount in indemnity and this amount in medical. Uh, definitely lay it out. Lay out your Kelly calculation. How is the cost of litigation percentage arrived at? Uh, calculate the net to the claimant and lay out your future offset. You know, after you reimburse and after the cost of litigation come out, how much is the claimant walking away with? And that is the amount of our future offset right. Uh, specify precisely how those rights are going to be applied and when they begin. Remember, a failure to do so is a waiver of those rights. Address the no-fault law if applicable. Remember, we have to deal with this whole in lieu of first-party benefits thing. Um, include instructions for reimbursement, so where you want the check sent and to whom it should be made payable. Reserve all rights. You never know if there's another subrogation action ongoing, so protectively say this is not full and final resolution of any of the carrier's rights under Section 29. 
Uh, make sure burns is addressed. And again, we talked about a number of instances and ways you can do this, whether it was satisfied or already or is being waived by the claimant or is being satisfied with a partial lien waiver or when the obligation will be satisfied based on ongoing burns payments. Uh, include a requirement that the final closing statement filed with the Office of Court Administration be produced within a specified time period. Uh, a note on this, so there are board panel decisions saying that a failure to produce that uh, as specified by the consent letter uh, does constitute you know, a settlement without our consent and a waiver of the right to workers' comp benefits. There are other decisions saying that you know, it's a uh, posthumous condition being imposed on the carrier's consent. Uh, the, the crucial difference in these decisions to me is the timing of everything and what the claimant actually agrees to. So I will take it to the bank every day of the week that if their attorney and the claimant sign off on giving you that uh, final closing statement within 60 days, they don't produce it, consider them uh, an RFA seeking to address a Section 29.5 violation. Why not? What do you have to lose? Uh, include contingent revocation, and this ties into the, what I was just talking about with you know, the final closing statement, and or the right to modify should the final settlement figures differ, uh, or should any terms or conditions not be complied with. All right, let's see if we got any questions. That was a bit of a 20-minute uh, slog there, so I appreciate you hanging in. All right, let us see. Nice. Uh, unless I'm missing something, I am not seeing any questions at the moment. So um, again, if anyone wants the risk transfer handbook, uh, cmajor at loisllc.com. I'll be happy to send you a PDF version, or if you want a paper copy, I'll send that along. Uh, but in the interim, hope to see you guys next month. We got an exciting topic, uh, how to actually subrogate in New York and New Jersey. And we're actually going to talk about some elements of third-party causes of action. So, you know, slip and trip and falls, motor vehicle accidents, that stuff. So uh, the July Major Mondays webinar is going to be a good one. Uh, hope to see you there. And in the meantime, thanks for attending.